The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. 200 years ago, February 23rd, 1821, the poet John Keats died in Rome at the age of 25. We shall have a little Keats for you just a bit later. And also a last word on Rush and from Rush. I only really have one news story for you today because it's the only one you really need. In North Wales, Denbyshire County Council has announced it will no longer name streets after public figures in case they subsequently become controversial. If you're a public figure, it's a tough break. You reckon uh, you've got everything covered on the racism front, the transphobia front, but you know how it goes. There's bound to be something else along in a year or two, and you might turn out to be retrospectively thisophobic or thataphobic or something of the other phobic. Better not to take any chances and just work on the assumption that you're surely something phobic and not name anything after you at all. Still, if it's any consolation to public figures in Denbyshire, things could be worse. Your very name might be a hate crime. The town of South Hero, Vermont, has decided to change the name of its town beach. Uh, Why? Because it's uh, named after Washington or Lincoln, Columbus, some other hater? No, it's currently called White's Beach, And one resident says her friends from New York are worried that White's Beach is a beach for whites only. Uh, Apparently not. It was given to the town uh, by a family by the name of White who own the surrounding farmland. South Hero is very Vermonty. That's to say it's 97.94% white. That's white as in Caucasian, not as in the White family. And of the remaining 2.06%, the town has twice as many Native Americans, Indians, as it does black people who comprise 0.24% of the population or just under four people. So on a typical day, the beach does look like whites only. And so you can see why to the agonized whitey white liberals on the town select board, the name doesn't help. Perhaps they could persuade the white family to change their name to black. Or trans. Uh, To reprise my old line, sometimes a society becomes too stupid to survive and frankly does not deserve to. And now from the land where everything is policed except crime. Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. I said a few days ago, we are Brit wanker copper feature, that I was a bit wankered out. Uh, But not anymore. This week, Her Britannic Majesty's wanker constabulary came roaring back. In most common law jurisdictions, the word offence is synonymous with the word crime. Robbery is an offence. Grievous bodily harm is an offence. Murder is an offence. But Merseyside police have decided to take it to the next level. It's apparently LGBT QWERTY month 
in the UK or in England or in Merseyside or the Wirral or whatever. It's been confusingly cross-scheduled against Black History Month in America. But uh, at any rate, the wanker coppers of Merseyside have decided to cut to the chase about the tight little world they're building for us and have declared via a big poster on the side of their police van that, quote, being offensive is an offence. You would think they had more important things to do, but Merseyside Police launched a billboard which had this headline on it. Being offensive is an offence. What? Yeah. yeah. Apparently, being offensive is an offence. This, of course, is complete nonsense. Being offensive is not an offence. Absolutely. But to have a banner headline going around Merseyside saying Just... being offensive right. is an offence is clearly ridiculous. Right. They did it. Uh, apparently, it was, a, it was a shopping centre in Birkenhead on Saturday as part of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual and Trans History Month. I mean, this is just utterly ridiculous. Um, Superintendent Martin Earl of Wirral Police said we would like to clarify that being offensive is not in itself an offence. Well, we know that, so why do it? Merseyside Police have now been forced to issue a rather weaselly apology and admit that they are in fact stone-cold wrong to assert that being offensive is an offence. Quote, being offensive is not in itself an offence, says a police spokesman. My, oh, my. If it were, the Merseyside police would be in big trouble. Clearly, being a Merseyside policeman is itself offensive to all persons with a decent respect for human liberty. So being offensive, they would have committed an offence and been obligated to arrest themselves. Even in the annals of police wankery, this is impressive. Someone high up in the chain of wankerdom at Merseyside Police commissioned this poster from an ad agency. Uh, I would like to know uh, which officer that was. I would also like to know the name of the agency that designed this poster and then sent it back to Merseyside Police. To whom? Uh, an assistant chief constable? The very chief? And someone at or just below that level signed off on this offensively offensive offensiveness without giving it a moment's thought. You know they didn't give it a moment's thought, don't you? We started with the COVID wankery, but the Chicom 19 regime is apparently now a template for all policing. This disgusting and revealing contempt for traditional liberties merits the rare Mark Stein show accolade of the full wanker altogether now. Who's the wanker? Who's the wanker? Who's the wanker in the blue hat? Who's the wanker in the big blue hat? Your Brit wanker coppers of the year to date, the Merseyside Police. Where are the resignations? Where are the firings? As I said a couple of days back, I feel I've been neglecting Her Majesty's Dominion somewhat through the avalanche of American guest hosting, uh, which naturally features on American concerns. Uh, so I called in our Deputy Senior Assistant Vice President of Canadian Affairs, the prevailing party in Lawton versus Canada. You know that landmark lawsuit in which Lawton kicked Canada's butt clear across the courtroom. We surely need a case Lawton versus Merseyside police sooner rather than later. Anyway, I've called in Andrew for another edition of our newest feature. The Mark Stein Show presents... 
Andrew Lawton's Canadian content. Okay, Andrew, it's all yours on a bed of Saskatoon Berry Coolie. Thanks, Mark. This week in Canada's House of Commons, members of Parliament voted unanimously to condemn China's genocide against Uyghur Muslims. I say unanimously, but there were a lot of empty chairs, not because of social distancing, but political cowardice. Liberal MPs decided they had better things to do than attend this particular vote, perhaps because Justin Trudeau decided that his cabinet would abstain. Just one member of Justin Trudeau's cabinet, one member of the Government of Canada, showed up to vote for this parliamentary motion. That was Marc Garneau, former astronaut turned Liberal Minister of Foreign Affairs, who had this to say when it was his turn to cast a vote. Mr. Speaker, I abstained on behalf of the Government of Canada. Mr. Garneau, abstention, abstention. He abstains on behalf of the Government of Canada. About an hour later, Marc Garneau issued the following statement. We remain deeply disturbed by the horrific reports of human rights violations in Xinjiang, including the use of arbitrary detention, political re-education, forced labor, torture, and forced sterilization. The free vote in Parliament ensures each member can make a determination based on available evidence. Taken together, these views will form Parliament's view. We welcome parliamentarians working together and debating this critical issue. So when Uyghur Muslims are being slaughtered and imprisoned and subjected to slavery at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party, this is all just a learning opportunity for Canadian parliamentarians. The virtue-signaling government that has never met a so-called human rights challenge it didn't want to take up has nothing to say when the perpetrators of it are the great perpetrators of most of this generation's human rights abuses, the Chinese Communist regime. In fact, Justin Trudeau has been more eager to call his own country and his own government a perpetrator of genocide than the Chinese, when a report found that Canada was guilty of ongoing genocide against Indigenous peoples. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is bending to pressure from the National Inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, which say the country is guilty of genocide. We accept the findings of the commissioners uh, that it was genocide. When it comes to genocide at the hands of his government and every other government to have come before him in Canada, there is no shortage of condemnation, but when it comes to the Chinese regime, he can't even bother to show up to vote. Now, if this was an effort to win over the Chinese Politburo, even then it wasn't all that effective. China's ambassador to Canada, Kong Pei Wu, denounced the vote as meddling in China's internal affairs. Kong told Canadians to respect facts and stop spreading disinformation adding, we urge the Canadian side to take seriously China's solemn position so as not to cause further damages to China-Canada relations. And what did Justin Trudeau do? Say, absolutely, your wish is my command. Now, while many Liberal MPs had no condemnation for the Chinese regime this week, a couple did have some condemnation for a London, Ontario business. Now, this is in my neck of the woods. The Ale House in London, Ontario, like so many Ontario restaurants shut down because of COVID-19 restrictions, had to put up a sign taking aim at lockdowns, saying that lockdowns, quote, caused more damage to the public than the China virus. And among the many politicians who have spoken up to condemn this as racist, as inhospitable to Asian Canadians are two Liberal members of Parliament, Kate Young and Peter Fragascados, whose party refuses to call out Chinese genocide 
but will call out a business owner frustrated by what the China virus, in his words, has unleashed on the world. Talk about priorities. And just as a bit of London, Ontario trivia, this is the city whose municipal conference center a little over a decade ago decided that they couldn't allow a guy by the name of Mark Stein to speak there, lest it anger the local imams. And apparently things have not gotten all that much better since then. Back to you, Mark. I well remember that, Andrew. The city was happy to host a celebration of bondage and domination paraphernalia called Sexapalooza, but Steinapalooza was just too disgusting to be associated with at all. Uh, Justin Trudeau really is such a nosebleed, isn't he? He actually owned up to the fact that the government of Canada is a perpetrator of genocide yet declined to take a position on whether the government of China is. I don't even get that. In essence, he announced to the world, my name is Justin and I'm a genocidal madman, uh, but didn't feel obligated to resign over the genocide on his watch. So clearly genocide's no big deal. Why not call China out and let it wash off Chairman Xi's back as easily as it washes off Justin's? Um, as you know, as you may remember, on Tucker last week, I think it was, I interviewed Gordon Chang about the United States' uh, present position on the Uyghurs. According to the State Department, the Chinese are engaged in genocide. According to Joe Biden, harvesting Uyghur body parts and all the rest of it is just a different, quote, cultural norm that we should respect. And as I also noted on Fox uh, the week before that, I think, genocide is one of those very few things in international law that obliges nations to do something. Nobody did anything about the government of Canada's self-admitted genocide, so it's hard to see why anyone will do anything about the government of China's. Thank you, Andrew. See you next time. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. As I mentioned at the top of the show, it is 200 years ago today that John Keats died, February 23rd, 1821. It was an agonizing and miserable death far from home in Rome where he had gone for his health, uh, ultimately to no avail. He died of tuberculosis or consumption, as we say of poets, a year earlier, February 3rd, 1820, he had, for the first time, coughed up blood. And he knew something about that, both because he had been a dresser, an assistant surgeon, at Guy's Hospital in London, and because he had nursed his own tubercular family members. So he knew what it means to cough up blood. And as he told his friend, Charles Armitage Brown, I know the colour of that blood. It is arterial blood. I cannot be deceived in that colour. That drop of blood is my death warrant. I must die. He was 24 when he spoke those words. There was not a lot of writing as his health declined in that final terrible year. This is believed to be the last poem John Keats ever wrote. His friend, the painter Joseph Seven, saw Keats working on it in September 1820 on the Maria Crowther, the ship taking them to Italy, from where the poet would never return. He wrote it in a volume of Shakespeare, and then, a couple of weeks before his death, presented the book to Joseph Seven. So Seven naturally assumed the poem was about him, 
it's far more likely to be about Fanny Braun, the bright star of his short life. I have two luxuries to brood over in my walks, he wrote to her, your loveliness and the hour of my death. If that sounds a touch overripe, well, Fanny felt the same way. She remained in mourning for six years and indeed mourned John Keats through all the four decades she survived him. Perhaps because he copied it into an anthology of Shakespeare's poetry, this is a Shakespearean sonnet. Fourteen lines, three quatrains of alternately rhymed lines, and then the final couplet. And as is traditional, there's a volta, or a switcheroo, after the eighth line. A shift in argument, a shift in perspective. Uh, In the first draft, dated to 1819, the poet was committed to love unto death. By September of 1820, that pledge was insufficient, as Keats well knew. And for the poet, the endless sleep of death is an alternative to ephemeral worldly love. The central image of the piece, the bright star, is not pressed into service for the usual poetical reasons, but only for one single aspect, its constancy. He wishes to be pillowed upon his fair love's ripening breast forever with the steadfastness of that bright star in the sky. Instead, he is the star, out there in the heavens, distant but constant and loving for eternity. First published in 1838, 17 years after the author's death, in the Plymouth and Devonport Weekly Journal, a sonnet by John Keats. Bright star, would I were steadfast as thou art, not in lone splendour hung aloft the night, and watching with eternal lids apart, like nature's patient sleepless eremite, the moving waters at their priest-like task of pure ablution round earth's human shores, or gazing on the new soft-fallen mask of snow upon the mountains and the moors. No, yet still steadfast, still unchangeable, pillowed upon my fair love's ripening breast, to feel forever its soft fall and swell, awake forever in a sweet unrest, still, still, to hear her tender taken breath, and so live ever, or else swoon to death. A palm from me to you, bright star, would I were steadfast as thou art, by John Keats. A 25-year-old man, wasted by impending death, can be forgiven for not being able to overcome the wretched unfairness of it all. The poet asked to be buried under a tombstone bearing no name, no dates, Just the words, here lies one whose name was writ in water. 
a resentful extension of a line by the immortal Catullus. What a woman tells a passionate lover should be written in the wind and the running water. And if this lockdown ever ends and you are free to visit the Protestant cemetery in Rome, you can see that headstone with no name and those words, albeit with a preamble his friends felt obligated to add. This grave contains all that was mortal of a young English poet who on his deathbed, in the bitterness of his heart at the malicious power of his enemies, desired these words to be engraved on his tombstone. Here lies one whose name was writ in water. 24th February, 1821. Keats's friends are implying there that bad reviews, quote, the malicious power of his enemies, are responsible for the poor fellow's death. Lord Byron, who was no stranger to the critics' hostility, uh, was more sanguine about such things, as he put it in response uh, to those words. "'Tis strange the mind, that very fiery particle, should let itself be snuffed out by an article." Can't get enough of America's undocumented anchorman? SteinOnline.com is your one-stop shop for all things Stein. Catch new episodes of The Mark Stein Show. Sit back and experience features like Stein's Song of the Week and Mark Stein's Tales for Our Time. Get the most of Stein Online by joining the Mark Stein Club, a global community of people just like you. The show never stops for members of the Mark Stein Club. Head on over to SteinOnline.com club for details. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. As you know, for the last week, I've been saying my farewells to a great indispensable presence in my life and the lives of tens of millions of Americans, Rush Limbaugh. I've said my piece in print, on the radio, on TV, and finally on Monday's special show with Rush's beloved Catherine. And I thank Catherine so much uh, for doing that show. It's not the easiest thing for a widow of five days. It really isn't. Uh, and some of what Catherine and I talked about has prompted some reaction from you. First, from Anthony Coco, a brand new member of the Mark Stein Club, just four days or so, and we're delighted to have him along. Anthony writes of our show with Catherine, Mark, Outstanding job today. I don't know much about Catherine, but it's obvious after listening to her that she's quite amazing and that Rush was lucky to have her over the last decade or so of his life. And I'm not going to lie, I almost lost it when you played your song during the third hour. Fortunately, I had my work to keep me focused and to prevent me from blubbering like a six-year-old who'd just had his bike stolen. Investment-related stuff, so I had to concentrate and make sure what I was writing made sense and wasn't going to run afoul of our compliance hall monitors. I also appreciated the audio clip you played of Rush discussing the wedding and the reaction that Sir Elton received from the conformity enforcers on the left for having the temerity to perform for the happy couple. I especially appreciated the he-doesn't-care line that Rush spoke about him. 
First Chrissy Hine, then Elton John. Are there perhaps still some glimmers of hope for free speech, freedom of association and agreeing to disagree after all? I'm terribly pessimistic myself, especially in light of the remarkable Merrick Garland testimony, as well as the rock-ribbed conservative SCOTUS decision to flip the bird to well over 70 million Trump voters again, both of which occurred today while we were busy commiserating with you and Mrs. Limbaugh. But pessimism has always been my nature, I think. I suppose that as long as there are a few brave souls out there willing to push back, then not all hope is lost. Well, pessimism ought to be your nature, Anthony, because look at the stature of the people you're talking about. Elton John is one of the most successful pop stars of the last half century. And Chrissy Hind isn't quite at that level, but she's up there, pretty high up there. And all they're doing is whatever people that famous and that successful and that rich should naturally expect to do. And that is whatever the hell they want. And the fact you that you have to be at that level to tell what you call correctly, the conformity and forces of the left to bugger off is very revealing about how bad things are. Would the guy who only got to number 37 on the hit parade back in 1978 be secure enough to let Rush use his theme tune or to play at Rush's wedding? I know a bassist in a band. I'll spare his blushes by not identifying him explicitly. But I heard the lady he plays bass for being interviewed on the radio not so long ago and she mentioned this or that track and said she wanted to start off with just bass and her bass player did a terrific job and the radio host said this would be your republican bass player what so a republican can't play bass now what's the point of celebrity if you have to grovel and abase yourself before no-names. I've had about two cocktails worth of interaction with Elton in my life, but I'll tell you this, he's a very decent and loyal and straightforward guy. After Conrad Black was fitted up by the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt US justice system in Chicago, both Elton and I wrote to George W. Bush asking him to pardon Conrad. He chose not to. Elton nevertheless stayed friends with Conrad, and after he was out of jail in Miami, Conrad was back in London, uh, threw a dinner party, <laughs> and seated Elton next to Nigel Farage, which I assume was Barbara, uh, uh, Lady Black's little jest, Barbara Emile. I assume that was Barbara's little jest, because Elton and Nigel are what you might call tonal opposites. But Elton was a great friend to Conrad, at a time when a lot of his so-called friends in American politics just threw him over as radioactive. All the former vice presidents, all the former secretaries of state, all the former governors and ambassadors, the hideous hollow nothing men of politics, where friendship has to be poll tested and focus group. They just abandoned Conrad and Elton didn't. And even though, uh, as <laughs> I once cruelly said in uh, Conrad's newspaper a long time ago, he's just a fat old queen. He's still more of a man than all those pathetic nothing vice presidents and secretaries of state. God rot the lot of them. Uh, Eric, a Steinclubber from East York, Ontario, writes, How is it that women like Catherine aren't involved directly in politics 
uh, aren't running the country. Instead, we get Maxine Waters and AOC, Crazy Kamala as the first woman president. Gresham's law at work, bad money drives out good, uh, to which uh, George Pazin, or Georges Pazin, as I always called the good monsieur, uh, replies from Pennsylvania, what sane person would choose to be involved in politics, particularly if coming from the right? You go from being a quiet person loved by many to a caricature hated by millions. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Well, I would wish it on my enemies, but the right doesn't engage in the same destructive tactics, pure slash and burn. The left does, no matter how much they claim otherwise. Sad but true, George or George. Uh, the point about Rush is they spent three decades trying to destroy him and failed. But they took out many others along the way. Sarah Palin, for example. As you know, I loathe American politics and think it could use more outsiders, a lot more outsiders. But the people running the racket don't want that. They want anything but and as I said a few weeks ago, the point about what they're doing to Trump, and by they, I mean everybody from the re-impeachment managers to the Russia investigation set to the federal attorney in New York, is to ensure there's no second Trump. That anyone out there minded to run on a Mr. Smith goes to Washington to drain the swamp platform looks at Trump and thinks, no way. They'll kill the real you and leave, as George said, merely a caricature hated by millions. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. France prepares to invade Germany. A Mongolian Khan is restored to his throne. And the getaway that wasn't. It's February 1921. A hundred years from today. World News Update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues. A French invasion force comprising Algerian, Moroccan and Senegalese troops from French Africa has been sent to the border with Germany in preparation for an invasion and occupation of the Ruhr to enforce the Versailles Treaty's war reparations. Incredible as it seems, an army of young Mohammedan men is waiting to invade Germany on the orders of Paris. A few days after the Georgian army retreated from the country's capital to defend the new seat of government at Batumi, and less than a fortnight after the Soviet invasion of Georgia, the Red Army has captured Tiflis and installed a Bolshevik government under Philippe Makaradas, chairman of the Georgian Revolutionary Committee. Far away in the Gulf of Finland, sailors of the Soviet Baltic fleet have risen up at Kronstadt demanding reforms to Bolshevik governments, such as the inclusion of anarchists on local Soviet councils. On the other hand, the Soviet Union and the Kingdom of Afghanistan have signed a treaty of friendship as have the Soviet Union and Persia. One way or another, communism is spreading. The International Working Union of Socialist Parties has been formed in Vienna.
Tigers smiling, it's in celebration. After 18 months of Chinese occupation, the Bogd Khan has been returned to his throne. The son of an accountant at the court of the 12th Dalai Lama, the Bogd Khan, known in Tibet as the Bogdo Lama, has ruled Mongolia somewhat precariously since 1911. His prime minister will be Sodnomin Damdinbazar, a high Buddhist incarnation from northwestern Mongolia, allied with Baron von Ungern Sternberg, the anti-Bolshevik Austrian-born warlord known as the Mad Baron. As head of the Asiatic Cavalry Division, it is the Mad Baron who has thrown Chinese troops out of Mongolia. At the Irish city of Cork, six members of Sinn Féin were executed by order of court-martial for levying war on the government forces. Almost immediately, five soldiers in Cork were then killed by Sinn Féin. The Panamanian army has prevented Costa Rican troops from invading the country at the border town of Coto. A U.S. force has moved into Panama City to protect the seat of government. In the United States, President-elect Warren G. Harding has announced his cabinet appointees, including Herbert Hoover as Secretary of Commerce, Andrew Mellon as Secretary of the Treasury, and Henry Wallace as Secretary of Agriculture. They will be confirmed by the U.S. Senate in March. Election fraud is a terrible thing in any free society and has to be confronted seriously. So Congressman Patrick McLean, Democrat of Pennsylvania, has been removed from his seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. His colleagues voted by 161 to 121 to boot him after he was found to have committed election fraud in the November vote and then to have violated the Corrupt Practices Act which is apparently binding on congressmen. On March the 4th, the disgraced Democrats' Republican opponent, John Farr, will instead be seated in the House. A bad month for public transportation. First, an horrific collision of two electric streetcars near Shelton, Connecticut. A passenger was seen by witnesses on the southbound trolley to Bridgeport carrying a can of gasoline. When one of the cars missed a signal and found itself heading down the track towards the northbound trolley from Bridgeport and the two streetcars collided, the gasoline can ruptured and ignited, sending an inferno sweeping through both cars, burning eight passengers to death and hospitalising another 20. Just days after that horror, at least another 28 persons are dead and another 100 injured at Porter, Indiana, where the Michigan Central Railroad's Canadian flyer disregarded a right-of-way warning and was struck by the New York Central Railroad's Boston-Chicago Express. Among the dead are the fireman and the engineer of the New York Central who were killed when they were scalded by a ruptured boiler. Henry Starr was a most resourceful criminal, twice sentenced to hang 
for the murder of a U.S. Marshal, he received a presidential pardon. And instead of reflecting on his good fortune, he immediately formed one of the most violent gangs in Arkansas. He also appeared as himself in a recent photo play about his robberies, the picture A Debtor to the Law. Mr. Starr was the pioneer of what is now known to 'er ne'er-do-wells as the getaway car. Alas, he did not get away quite quickly enough. Four days after being shot in mid-robbery by W.J. Myers, president of the People's National Bank of Harrison, Arkansas, wielding a 38 caliber rifle, Henry Starr is dead of his injuries at the age of 47. U.S. Army First Lieutenant William Coney of the 91st Aero Squadron has completed a transcontinental flight of 22 and a half hours flying time from Coronado, California to Pablo Beach, Florida in a de Havilland DH-4. The United States Post Office has set a new record for airmail delivery, conveying letters posted the day before at San Francisco to delivery in New York City in 33 hours and 20 minutes. Pilot Jack Knight is the first mailman to fly through the night rather than waiting for daylight. He departed San Francisco at 4.30 a.m. Pacific time, landed in daylight at Cheyenne, Wyoming, then took off at dusk and flew through the night in darkness for over 800 miles to Chicago, where a second pilot, Ernest Allison, continued the flight to land at Roosevelt Field, Long Island, at 4.50 p.m. Eastern time. The post office declared the night flight, quote, the momentous step in civil aviation. Find a rose like this, you're in clover. The so-called American Beauty Rose is a deep pink cultivar bred by Henri Ledeschaux in France in 1875 and brought to the United States the same year. But the man responsible for popularizing it across the nation was the florist Orland Bassett, dead at 89. Prince Ernst Gunther, had been Duke of Schleswig-Holstein from the age of 16 until the abolition of all the German royal houses in 1918. Dead at the age of 57, 
he will be succeeded as head of the Schleswig-Holstein Ducal House by his cousin Albert, a German prince but also a grandson of Queen Victoria, and thus excused by the Kaiser from having to fight against the British in the late war. Otto Pieper wrote the definitive work Bergenkunde on German castle architecture, including the castles of Schleswig-Holstein. The only rival to his command of the field was Bodo Ebhardt, whom Herr Pieper excoriated for making ahistorical changes to the Chateau du Haute Königsberg in Alsace at the behest of his client, the Kaiser. But Herr Ebhardt has outlived his rival, Otto Pieper, is dead at 79. Karl Menger, the economic theorist and founder of the Austrian School of Economics, is dead at the age of 81. Joining him among the great majority are two great engineers, Major General Alexander Mackenzie, who built 100 miles of wing dams on the Mississippi River, and Henry Stanley, chief engineer of Queensland Railways, whose legacy includes the Albert Bridge on the Brisbane River and the Alexandra Bridge at Rockhampton. Schofield High was a Yorkshire cricketer who played for England 113 times. He had the lowest average of any bowler taking a 1,000 wickets this last quarter century, dead of a stroke at the age of 49, Schofield High. And that's the way of the world, February 1921. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. That will almost do it for today's show. I'll be on telly with Tucker Wednesday night, and just ahead of that, Laura's links will round up the internet for you right here. One final word on Rush, whom I admired and adored and in whose debt I shall forever be. Rush never wanted to do a final show, never wanted to retire. Even as his cancer advanced, all he wanted was to be here for tomorrow's show, or if not the day after tomorrow's, or next week's, even as his wretched, broken body refused to cooperate. And so in his last months, he would often have a guest host standing by in the studio, ready to take over in case his great voice faltered 40 minutes or an hour and a half into the three-hour show. And it fell to me to be on standby for the last two shows of Rush's life. I was happy to do it. I would have gone on doing it for as long as he wanted. And if you're worried about having to take over at a minute's notice, you listen more intently and you get to know the telltale signs. And at six minutes past midday Eastern time on that last day, I had the hint of weakness in his vocal timber. And then, as always... He somehow willed his frail and shrunken form to rouse itself and power through for the next three hours so that nobody listening, none of the listening millions, noticed a thing. No one other than me and Catherine and a couple of others would have heard anything other than Rush doing an effortless broadcast and having the time of his life. And at the very end of the show, he chose to thank me for standing by for three hours. And so I feel slightly embarrassed that a glorious third of a century run came to an end, not with any of Rush's big thoughts or unique insights of which there had been so many over the decades. Why Rush makes the big bucks 
uh, as another fallen comrade, Kathy Shadle, always liked to put it. Uh, instead, for his sign-off of the last show, there were no grand thoughts, and instead his final words on air were, Thank you again, Mr. Stein. We'll be back soon. The second part was not to be, and the first part was not necessary. But many people in the last week have pointed out to me those last words of Rush, including some commenters here. It was not by design. It was the roll of the dice, and I feel a little sheepish about it. But today we shall take our leave as Rush took his leave. Mark Stein, thank you again, Mr. Stein, for standing by today. We'll be back soon. No. Thank you, Rush, for everything.